who was that guy? This is Colin from Lincoln Christian University. He's come over to help. Uh, thank you. And his parents are here today, so too. So that's, that's really great. I want to thank Tracy Jyer for filling in last week for Casey. Uh, Casey will be preaching next week, as we mentioned, so uh, we'll hope that goes well. And Tracy was so on target about his text being a hinge text for the book of Ephesians. Almost every letter by Paul has two parts, part one and part two. That brilliant? No. <laughs> part one is usually the doctrinal part, and part two is the practical part. The first part of the letters talk about what God has done, and, and then the second part is what we are to do, grace, and then duty, is, and then ought. And chapter four begins part two of Ephesians, and so far in this book, in the first half, Paul's talked about all the amazing blessings we have in Christ, how we've been chosen, that we've got redemption through his blood, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, we've been placed in his body, the church, we have received the glorious inheritance, and we have done nothing to deserve it. He talks about how we were dead and now been made alive again. He talks about reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, the privilege we have of sharing in this ministry and this gospel. I mean, there's so much good in the first three chapters of Ephesians, so many blessings, all because of Jesus. That's part one. Now we're going to start in on our response, our responsibility. Now is more the down-to-earth practical implications of what our relationship to God means in this life. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he starts with, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You have been called. You are in a special position. You're children of God. You're saints. You've received all these blessings. And now Paul says, I want you to look like it and act like it. In your marriage, and he's going to talk about marriage, in your home, with your kids, he's going to talk about parenting. With your, uh, at work, he's going to talk about that. At school, you know, in the church with one another, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, one calling I had is I was a preacher's kid. And I always thought that was a good thing because I was expected to live a certain way. And to hear people speak well of my parents was very important to me. And I didn't want to do anything to smear their reputation. I didn't always live up to that like I should have. But overall, it was good for me. Some preacher kids resent it because there's expectations and responsibilities. I, and kind of like some children of God resent the expectations from God. They want the benefits of God, but not the responsibility. They want the first half of Ephesians, but not the second. I thought my parents honored me by expecting a lot of me. And so Paul is honoring us by expecting a lot from us. So read those first three chapters again and again. See what God has done. It's just full of stuff that he's done in you and for you. And now we're going to talk about our response. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks that prison can be a good thing. Prison with a purpose. And we're all prisoners of something, by the way. We're all prisoners. We're all dedicated to something. And we are prisoners of the Lord. He is, as I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling. So we've been called to a new life, called to a new community, called to a new perspective, a new worldview, called to reconciliation with God and with one another. We are a new society, and he's going to give us the standards now for that new society. These last three chapters can be summarized into basically three callings. First of all, called to be one in chapter four. As God's children, we are called to have unity. Second, we are called to be holy Live holy lives, that's more in chapter 5, we're set apart to God, and that's where he starts talking about marriage, and uh, parenting, and, and work, and things like that. And then third calling is to be victorious, chapter 6, win the spiritual battle by putting on the armor of God. 
So live up to the calling that you've received by living in unity and in holiness and in victory. And today we're going to talk about unity from chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Now, I think it's important here to realize what Paul is not doing. He's not pronouncing a new set of laws or imposing a new code in this last part of Ephesians. This is not how we're going to earn our salvation. We are saved by God's work, not ours. Tracy talked about that last week. We cannot do anything to, uh, to earn this gift. That's what the first three chapters are about. But now Paul says, live what is fitting for the saints. He's basically saying, remember whose you are. You're a prisoner of the Lord. In chapter 5, he says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any impurity or of greed. Why? Because these are improper for God's holy people. That's not who you are. Get rid of the greed, the immorality. You know, that's not you. You're new now. Chapter 4 is an exhortation to unity, as I said, and these first three verses are the way to be united. Be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another, and you make every effort to keep the unity. This has been a major emphasis by our leadership here. We try to make every effort to keep unity, and it's not easy. It takes patience, humility, gentleness, bearing with one another. In other words, the way to unity is through character. Unity and character are inseparable. Without God-like qualities, God-like unity is impossible. Now, I've been in churches that did not have unity. I've sat in elders' meetings where I thought there could actually be physical violence. And I'm reminded of the old saying, to live above with saints we love, O Lord, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. Or little eight-year-old Arnold wrote to the preacher and said, Dear preacher, I know God loves everybody, but he never met my sister. And his sister prayed, Dear God, I would love to go to heaven someday because I know my brother won't be there. Wow. We love the church. We love Jesus. We love God. But eh, there's some people just kind of hard to get along with. And Paul calls for four character qualities to promote unity in our homes, in our church, in our lives, in our community. Number one, Humility or be completely humble, he says. Now, what's the opposite of humility? Pride. Yeah, Pride, I'm going to suggest, lurks behind all discord. Pride lurks behind all discord. And it may be that the greatest single ingredient for unity is the first one here is humility. Humble people respect others. They never treat others like dirt. They don't ignore or neglect people, at least not intentionally. And they live out Philippians 2, 3 through 6 that says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Those verses are so countercultural today. I mean, can you imagine those in today's world? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Value others above yourselves in this me first generation. I looked at my files on humility and I found two statements that can help us grow in this. The first statement is that true humility is not defeating pride. It is thinking of the other person. Now, pride is the opposite of humility, but you're not going to defeat pride by saying, well, okay, now I'm going to be more humble. I'm not going to have as much pride, because you're still focusing on yourself. Philippians 2, Jesus says, think about the other person. 
focus on others. Have a servant mindset. Empathize. Humility is not self-renouncing. It's not self-disparagement. Jesus never did that. I think it's more like self-forgetfulness. Think of others. Quit thinking so much about yourself. It might be a little healthier. Here's the second statement that will help us. You can cultivate humility by understanding that you might not be as correct as you think you are. And I'm just going to leave that as it is. I think that's pretty clear. You who are old enough to remember happy days, remember Fonzie, the one word he could never say? I was... What was it? You old people. Wrong. Okay, I was wrong. He couldn't say that. Okay, We need to say that. Peter said God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The proud are easily threatened. Uh, the proud easily get their feelings hurt. They're quick to be offended. They're never satisfied. And they will always, always disrupt unity. And then he says be gentle, which is also the word for meekness. The word carries the idea of strong and yet controlled. Free from malice and revenge. Meekness doesn't think everything's unfair or insists on their rights. Almost everything in our world, you think about it, promotes some kind of division and competition and disunity, and it const there's constant whispers, if I were you, I would have left him long ago. <laughs> I wouldn't put up with that. You need to look out for number one, because nobody else will. And the whole philosophy of the age is independent, self-oriented. Even the theory of evolution is survival of the fittest, and we're all struggling and fighting each other, and it's about competition, not co cooperation. Now, to be meek does not mean to be weak, strong, and yet controlled. I think a lot of men need to hear this one. Strong, controlled. Third is patience. Another word is endurance, able to endure or uh, absorb some hits. I like one paraphrase says, long-suffering toward aggravating people. You don't have to react to every wrong. You can be patient. The Holy Spirit is in you. And then along with that, bearing with one another love or forbearance and bearing with one another implies we have contact with one another. There's interaction. Um, for many, they think that love and unity just means lack of conflict or separation. You know, well, I don't have anything against him. You know, and we keep our distance, and we think that's the way to keep unity. I would call that a passive unity, which really isn't unity at all. To not do harm will bring unity. No, seldom in Scripture is doing nothing or keeping your distance a virtue. Bearing with one another implies you're going to be interacting with one another and fellowship and getting to know one another, uh, getting to know some new people. And the second thing it implies, bearing with one another, implies the person loved is sometimes a burden. Jesus expects us to take up that burden of others. Sometimes it's a financial burden, sometimes an emotional burden, maybe a time burden. Bearing with another, one another implies we're going to get involved in the lives of people. We're going to touch people. So that's the way to unity. The next three verses are the bases. There's one body, one spirit, just as you're called to one hope, when you're called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Key word there, obviously, is the word one, and the basis for our unity is our one God, one spirit, one Lord, one God. And because of that, we have one church, one faith, one hope, one baptism. Our calling to unity comes out of the unity of our God. And notice, very important, the phrase, there is one body, one faith, etc., He's not, it's not the way things should be. It's not saying, it, it, it is. There is only one church. There is only one spirit. It's just the way it is because there's only one head. Now, how do you reconcile that with all the disunity we see? It looks like a lot of churches and all these denominations and conflict in churches. I heard of one church 
where members were suing each other. Some were squirting glue in the lock to keep other church members out and pouring oil in the organ, so someone didn't like the organ, I guess. Police were called 70 to 80 times in the span of three years, and they finally said, we're not coming unless somebody's bleeding. They went from 140 members down to two dozen. They now have two groups who meet separate hours that when they're allowed to go to the building, and it's all over pride and ego, and I'm guessing probably money. How can you say there's one body when you hear that and the thousands of denominations? And the answer is God only has one church. True Christians united in Christ with other Christians. We may set up walls, but God doesn't. There's only one church. There's only one church in Mount Pulaski. We just meet in different places, but there's only one. Now, Paul's not naive. He sees that unity is not yet a reality. So in verse 3, he says, make every effort to keep the unity. In the very passage where he asserts unity, that we're one, the possibility of disunity is also recognized. Down in verse 13, he says, until we all reach unity. So it's not yet been attained, not even then. So we are one, and yet we're told to be one. That's the is. We is one, but we ought to be one. They go together. My five brothers, four brothers, five boys, have all children, we all have children, we have grandchildren, so we're a fairly large family by today's standards, and we are united by blood. We're the same family, and uh, let's say that in this family we have a big fight, and we end up not speaking to each other, and there's a big division in the family, and we don't meet anymore until we have family reunions. Guess what? We're still family. We're still related. We're still united by blood. You can't change that, and yet there's disunity. And I think that's kind of a picture of the church today. We're one in Christ, and yet there's so many factions. And the attitude my family could take if we were having all these fights, well, we're still the same family, so it's no big deal if we don't get along. We're, we're still related. No, no family wants that. It, it is a big deal if we're not getting along. It's not right. So in families, hopefully, we'll work toward reconciliation. And that's what Paul's saying. You make every effort to reach unity, even though you may not be at that point. In the Bible, there are very few reasons for people to be kicked out of a church. Now, we don't do that much anymore these days, excommunication. There's very few reasons in the Bible, but one of them is divisiveness. You divide the church, the church needs to move on from you. Someone went out two weeks after I preached uh, on reconciliation, and they said, well, I thought you'd mentioned a wind farm. And I thought, yeah, that was a pretty difficult time in our community, and it inevitably spilled over into the church. But the elders prayed, did all they could to maintain unity. We talked about it at every meeting. They were patient, gentle, forbearing, men of character. And even though there might be some disagreement on the wind farm, we've come through it pretty well. We're still family. Make every effort. Unity is based first on character, patience, forbearing, meekness, and forgiveness. Unity is based in the nature of our one God. And then verse 7, he says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now, when did Jesus ascend? Shortly after the resurrection, several weeks after the resurrection. And that's when he gave us the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts to people. And then Paul kind of chases a rabbit here and talks about the ascension a little bit. He says, what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. 
He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. In other words, Jesus plumbed the depths of death. Some say he went to hell uh, when he died. He descended, but now he's ascended to the highest place. And then verse 11, so Christ himself then gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to do what? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Character is the way to unity. God is the basis of unity. And now spiritual gifts are the tool of unity. Christ ascended and he left us behind, but he didn't leave us orphans. He didn't leave us alone. He left the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. So the source of the gifts are the exalted Christ. And it says each one is given a gift, is given grace. So it is important here. You, every one of you, have received some kind of a gift. Verse 16 says, as each part does its work, not just a select few. I am not the only senior minister in this church. How many of you are older than me? Anyone? There's one. Anyone? There's two. There's a few. I am not the only senior minister. If you're older than me, you are a senior minister. Okay? Get it? Garrett is not the only youth minister. If you're a youth, you are a youth minister because we're all ministers, everyone, the entire congregation. Some of you are middle-aged sermons, uh, ministers. And uh, we've all received the Holy Spirit. We've all received uh, gifts that he's given to us. Most churches, however, about 20% of the people do 80% of the work. You know, the Pareto principle. 20% of the people do the heavy lifting and the giving and the serving. And if we could just solve the problem of getting people to use their gifts in ministry... It'd be a major step in solving the problem of disunity and immaturity. Because when we're all on the front lines, it's a limited opportunity for complaining. We may disagree on some hows, but we're going to agree on the mission, and we're going to minister working together. The nature of the gifts, then, is varied. We have one source, but yet we're diverse. Same purpose, which is to build the body to maturity. And the beauty of the church, God allows diverse people with diverse backgrounds and abilities and ministries working together. I read about a church in the Chicago area. True story. And they have a time during worship called the prayers of the people. And various people within the congregation would call out a prayer, and the congregation would respond, Lord, hear our prayer. So someone would say, uh, Lord, I pray for the healing of my uncle. And everyone would say, Lord, hear my prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. So I want us to do that. I'm going to give you a request or two, and I want you to say, Lord, hear our prayer in response, okay? Lord, I ask for peace in the world. I pray for our nation and our leaders. We pray for Casey's recovery. Now, when you open it up like they did to the whole congregation, you're never sure just what you'll get. And there was one guy by the name of Adolphus who saw it as a kind of a platform to air some of his thoughts and feelings. And one time he got up and said, Lord, thank you for creating Whitney Houston and her magnificent body. And the congregation paused a little bit and a few claimed weekly, Lord, hear our prayer. <clears throat> Another time he got up and prayed that the white honky pastors of this church would see their houses burned down this week. Thankfully, no one said, Lord, hear our prayer on that one. He'd been kicked out of three churches already. Once he threatened a Sunday school class, said if I had a rifle, I'd kill everyone in this room. And obviously there were some problems going on there. But what does the church do with Eldolphus? Well, a group of people in the church, including a doctor and a psychiatrist, took him on as their special project. 
And every time he had an outburst, they'd pull him aside and talk to him about it, about what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. You know, praying for the pastor's house to burn down is probably not appropriate. Praying about a woman's great body is not appropriate. And they learned that Aldolphus sometimes walked five miles to church because he could not afford a bus fare. So some people started giving him rides. Some invited him over for meals. Most Christmases he spent with one of the families. He wanted to become a member of the church. And so the leadership asked him some standard membership questions, but the elders found little encouragement that he was ready for that step, and they put him on kind of a probation and said he could join when he, uh, when he demonstrated an understanding what it really meant to be a Christian. And against all odds, Eldolfa's story has a happy ending. He did calm down. He started calling people in the church when he felt some of the craziness coming on. He even got married. And in his third attempt, Eldolfa's was finally accepted for church membership. The church did not give up on him. Gave him a second chance, a third, fourth, fifth. So you have Christians who've experienced the grace of God, the first three chapters of Ephesians, transferred it to Adolphus, chapter 4 of Ephesians. That's the work of Christ in his body. Every member is an instrument of God. And in a healthy body, every part is functioning. When everyone is functioning, we can do so much more, and we won't have 20% that are exhausted. When you were baptized, you were made a minister. And we expect our paid ministers at this church to speak truth and to study the Bible and to pray and minister to people. We expect our ministers to live up to their calling, to have a right spirit and stand firm. Well, folks, you are clergy. Live a life worthy of your calling, in your character and in your gifts. There should not be a needy person in this church. There should not be anyone who feels neglected or lonely. There should not be anyone who feels like no one cares. But the body so often limps along trying to be effective, but it's handicapped because not every part is valued. We need your gifts. Verse 14, then, here's what will happen. We'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, previously, he talks about the gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors to prepare everyone else to do works of service. So the ministry of the word, those who teach and those who preach, should persuade, should encourage, should challenge and enable God's people to fulfill the, the mission. So the purpose of the gifts is maturity. Verse 13, to equip the people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. In every church, I look for one thing. Well, I look for a lot of things, but there's one main thing I look for, and this is the thing that gives me the most joy, and that is, is someone growing. Now, you may be way down here at the start. You may be in Adolphus. When you grow to this point, I rejoice. Now, you may be way up here, and you are really mature, so you're not growing. That's bad. I don't rejoice. When people are growing, that is what gives us the most joy. And that's one of the goals as a Christian for you is to see the maturing process of the church that you're a part of. See the outreach of the body and a growing in a healthy body. I want to close with this membership covenant that Rick Warren has at his church. Uh, uh, Rick Warren's written a lot of books. He's a nationally known preacher. And new members have to make the following four commitments. Number one, I will protect the unity of my church. 
I think there's a reason that's number one. By acting in love toward other members, by refusing to gossip, and by following the leader. That's my first commitment. My second commitment, I will share the responsibility of my church by praying for its growth. I hope you'll pray. Sign up for the prayer vigil next week. That's going to be next week. By inviting the unchurched to attend and by warmly welcoming those who visit. Third, I will serve the ministry of my church by discovering my gifts and talents, by being equipped to serve, by developing a servant's heart. And fourth, I will support the testimony of my church by attending faithfully, by living a godly life, and by giving regularly. And then they have scriptures to support every one of those points. Could you sign that? Would you? Live a life worthy of your calling. And the first call is to unity and maturity. And that's what we want here. Growing up together like brothers and sisters in a family, sometimes we bump into each other, but we're still growing and still maturing in Christ. Now, I've asked Casey to come up and present a very practical way that you can help fulfill some of this. So I'm, I'm really excited about this part. Um, instead of just saying, hey, guys, grow up and use your gifts, um, Mark thought it would be, it would be uh, good to find a way to help to equip others and, and to find their gifts, because maybe you don't know what your, your gifts are, but we all have them. Uh, all believers in the Spirit have spiritual gifts, and maybe you know what it is, but you haven't developed it or you haven't worked with the church on it. And so uh, Mark asked Garrett and I to, um, to come up with something, and and we all kind of worked together on this and found a uh, spiritual gifts assessment uh, that's it's online. And so if you go to our website, and we have a slide for that, yep, you'll see the uh, this little banner at the bottom that says Know Your Gifts. If you click on that, it will lead you to, a, uh, to the next slide. Um, it says Welcome to Spiritual Gifts Discovery Assessment. You put your name in and your email. And then I, I did this. It leads you to a quiz that you... You just uh, uh, click the, uh, uh, I can't even remember, because it took eight minutes, I remember that much. Um, but you, uh, it asks questions, and you click which one you think fits you the most. And so there are a couple things. One, I would suggest doing it yourself, and then maybe having someone else do it for you. Like, if you have your spouse do it. We did this in Sunday school a while back, and, and Jen and I both filled out a test for me. And it was interesting, some things that I thought I was maybe good at, and I answered questions one way, and she answered them differently. So it's nice to, to do that. But, but anyway, so you fill it out, and there's 16 different gifts, and it, and it gives you a score for each one. And so just for example, I had uh, encouragement, 12, and mercy, 9. Uh, I do care about people, but apparently not as much as I thought. Uh, and so uh, if, you, if you fill this out here, what happens is you get that, and it sends you the results, and it sends me the results. Uh, if you do this, I will contact you, okay? As long as it goes through and I get the email, um, I will contact you. Maybe we see that your gifts uh, are suited for a certain ministry, and so maybe I'll, I'll reach out to the, uh, a ministry leader, or maybe it, uh, your gifts look like you should work with uh, the children, so I'll talk to Rob. But, but anyway, we want to help you to find your gifts and to, to develop. And what else it, it does here, just for example, encouragement, since that was one of my top ones, uh, it says, the spiritual gift of encouragement. De the definition is, uh, the gift of encouragement is the God-given ability to present w words of comfort, consolation, and encouragement so as to strengthen or urge to, 
to action those who are discouraged or wavering in their faith. It gives spiritual references for encouragement. It says people with this gift like to, and it says, you know, well, it says comfort others to trust and hope in the promises of God, and there's some others. It says characteristics of people with encouragement are positive and motivating. There's a whole list. And it says potential ways to use the gift of encouragement, which is probably my favorite part of this. It says visiting the sick or elderly, counseling, hospitality team member, prayer ministry. So anyway, that's, that's what you do. Just follow that link on our website. If you don't use a computer or you can't do it um, and you call me, we will set up a way to make sure that you can take this. Um, there are other, other, um, other ways. This is just the easiest one. Um, so yeah, I encourage you to do that, and, and uh, we'll all grow and mature together as a church. Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for your word and for your truths. And, and as we go through Ephesians, I thank you that it did start with you. Uh, with your grace and love for us that you showed us through Jesus. And uh, so I just pray that we respond accordingly in our relationships and, uh, and, and by using the gifts that you've given us, uh, that you've equipped us with these gifts to do ministry so that we can also equip others. Uh, so I pray that we grow as a church, as one body, and that we do what we can uh, for you and for the kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
You may be seated. As, as we go through the book of Ephesians, uh, I know you've, you've heard now that there's been two parts to this, and uh, maybe some of you haven't been here for a while or you're new here, and so I want to go back and read uh, something near the beginning of the book that reminds us of what God did for us. It's uh, Ephesians 2, beginning of verse 4. It says, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, 